Tonight we'll be looking at gentleness and self-control. It's, it's kind of ironic, the things that the Lord would have us teach on. These may not be what I would consider to be my strong points overall. I think there's some room for growth there, especially with the six children and, and all the damage that they can do. But um, so it is, it's kind of funny. I think it's some of the Lord's sense of humor too. And I've actually learned a lot working on this study as well. I've really enjoyed it. So hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll get something out of it as well. But uh, what the outline is, is we'll look at a few verse, verses and quotes discuss, discussing gentleness and self-control. And then we'll also look at how we can apply it toward our children. And uh, we'll look at one personal example uh, from my life. Our anchor verse with all of this regarding the fruit of the Spirit is Galatians 5.22 and 3. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Let's go before the Lord, please. Father, we thank you and praise you again. We thank you, as our brother Trevor said, Lord, thank you for gathering us here without persecution, Lord, that we can come study your word and, and Lord, just apply it to our lives. We can learn and uh, take these things and apply it, Lord, to benefit others. Lord God, and as you work through us, Lord, we pray for your help of the Holy Spirit. None of this would be possible without without your help, Lord, as we look to grow in these characteristics. We praise you and thank you and ask for your just free hand upon the study here and the children's services or the children's classes as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So regarding these characteristics, all of them, we know that we're to exhibit these characteristics as the Lord himself uh, exhibits these characteristics as well. Here are a few verses, just kind of a couple of core verses regarding gentleness. 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-six. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. So we see gentleness is a characteristic of the Lord himself. And it's a, kind of an interesting verse to us, kind of a, almost kind of an odd verse to human thinking, that it's not his power that's specified or his holiness or anything like that, but it's the Lord's gentleness that made David great, which is really ironic, David being kind of the shepherd, warrior, king, and yet the Lord made him great through the Lord's gentleness. And this is a great verse, too, as we see the armor of God and the fruit of the Spirit both in the same verse. The previous verse says, David talks about where you've taught my hands for, he teaches my hands for war. So, and also Psalm 18 echoes this verse by verse as well. This is 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-six. But it's interesting because gentleness is not weakness, and that's probably part of the point here because David was certainly not a weak man, and, and we know that the Lord is, um, you know, he prepares his people for, for battle, you know, all kinds of different battles, but we know that the Lord had prepared David, and so we know there's nothing about weakness pertaining to this, so the world would look at gentleness and weakness as similar, but that's not the case, biblically speaking. Fast forwarding to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 4.21, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? And generally we know that a proud, hard heart invites a sharp rebuke, whereas a humble, teachable spirit usually doesn't require a sharp rebuke like that. So, and here Paul is talking about that where we see where the hum, humble people they receive instruction, they receive correction from their friends, and they accept it and, and try to grow from it, whereas a, a proud person 
receives doesn't receive it necessarily, and so you have to get more firm with a person like that. That's what Paul is talking about. But overall, he's given one of two options. I can come to you with a rod of correction or a spirit of gentleness. Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such, a one, such one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So even when one person requires correction, the person that's doing the correction should also employ gentleness. Otherwise, the corrector runs the risk of sin as well. So it's, it's funny how we would want others to correct us gently, but we may not be that, that gentle toward other people. You know, we would want people to be sensitive to our feelings, but anytime any of us have to approach another person, it should be done in a spirit of gentleness. And I can say that's not always the case, whether it's people that you know or, or uh, your children or whatever it is, it's easy to, to kind of snap and, and forget that, but that is a, a instruction for us. And finally, gentleness is something to be pursued, so you have to be intentional about it. First Timothy 6.11, but you, a man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godly, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. So there's another one, and again, it's something that it's not just a characteristic, it's something that you have to pursue and actually develop. A couple of verses regarding self-control, Proverbs 25, 28, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. And the ESV in this says self-control, that was the New King James, but the ESV says self-control. In a parallel verse, one that I've always loved is Proverbs 16, 32, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that takes a city. So in my, in my eagerness to take the city, sometimes I sacrifice ruling my own spirit. That's, that's a mistake I commonly make where I'm focused on whatever, is, whatever it is I'm trying to do, and, and I forget about what the verse is actually saying. It's saying, don't just worry about taking the city, worry about controlling your own spirit. So that's a, that's a, a big issue. Self-control is a qualification for leadership. Titus 1.8 says that a bishop or elder must be not greedy, but hospitable, a lover of what's good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. So from this, I would infer that he'd be gentle as well as generally a self-controlled person is, is not likely to fly off the handle versus one who's not self-controlled. So it's a qualification for leadership as well. And the church as a whole, Titus continues in chapter 2 and states that the older men should be sober, reverent, and temperate. The older women also should be reverent and not given to slander. And they should also teach the younger women to do the same. And, and all, it also applies to servants and everyone and he summarizes it this way, all that the word of God would not be blasphemed and that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, righteously, I'm sorry, righteously and godly in, this, in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here we, we see the self-control is denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Here's a few helpful quotes. I really enjoyed going through these, and, and it was difficult to actually select some of the best ones, but here's a few of these. Gentleness 
is an active trait describing the manner in which we should treat others. Meekness is a passive trait describing the proper Christian response when others mistreat us. That's Jerry Bridges. Let me read that one more time just, just so we can really apply it. But gentleness is an active trait. It's how you treat other people. So it's describing the manner in which we should treat others, whereas meekness is a passive trait describing the proper Christian response when others mistreat us. The second one regarding gentleness, meekness is not to be confused with weakness. The meek are not simply submissive because they lack the resources to be anything else. Meekness is quite compatible with great strength and ability as humans measure strength. But whatever strength or weakness the meek person has is accompanied by humility and a genuine dependence on God. True meekness may be a quality of the strong, those who could assert themselves but choose not to do so. That's Leon Morris. And so we see that over, over again in the scriptures as well. Joseph was put in a position where he could have been ruthless to his brothers. Moses also could have been very hard on the people of Israel. He could have let the plague sweep through and not interceded for them. He could have been hard on them as well. David could have been brutally hard on the house of Saul, but he chose not to. He sought out Saul's family members and showed kindness to them. And Jesus, of course, could have been ruthless as well. So we know that, again, it's a sense of power under constraint. So gentleness, meekness, all those things. Here's probably my favorite quote on this by George Bethune. Perhaps no grace is less prayed for or less cultivated than gentleness. Indeed, it is considered rather as belonging to natural disposition or external manners than as a Christian virtue. And seldom do we reflect that not to be gentle is sin. So we tend to think that gentleness is something that it's just a natural characteristic of the person. And it's true. Someone could be more just naturally a little more gentle than others. But you kind of get the impression that it's something that can't be improved upon when in fact it is and something that you should strive for. So I'll read this one again. Perhaps no grace is less prayed for or less cultivated than gentleness. In fact, before I did this study, I would say I'd never really even thought about it, to tell you the truth, just a complete admission. I was kind of like, gentleness, yeah, of course I'm gentle. You know, wouldn't even think about it beyond that. Indeed, it is considered rather as belonging to natural disposition or external manners than as a Christian virtue. And seldom do we reflect that not to be gentle is sin. So, and like, I think most of us would just kind of assume that you know, we are gentle, and, and thankfully as a Christian, you know, when you blow it as a parent towards your children, the Holy Spirit does prompt you to go and apologize. That's something, uh, you know, something that's very clear in Scripture and um, always trying to make that right, where if you blow your relationship with, you know, your spouse or your children, something like that, you go and straighten that out very quickly before the sun even goes down, the Bible says. So self-control, there's a basic tenet that summarizes this, and here's, here's kind of a way of looking at it. Self-control is not doing the things you want to do when you know you shouldn't be doing them. And we'll, we'll elaborate on that a little bit more. Self-discipline is doing the things you know you need to do even when you don't want to do them. So self-control is kind of pulling yourself back from things that you would like to do even though you know you shouldn't be doing them. Self-control is kind of holding yourself back. Self-discipline is making yourself do the things you need to do you may not feel like doing them, but self-discipline is, is going forward and doing this, you know, doing what you need to do and getting it done. And 
the, the examples that come to mind for this actually, actually involve medicine just because I see it every single day in medicine. I see it where people, so many patients, you know, I try to get them to verbalize what the situation is. And, and um, you know, a lot of times people have a very, very favorable disposition toward sugar, for example, diabetics, non-diabetics, things like that, and just try to get them to things that they know that they need to do and they're, they're not able to do it, you know, pulling away, changing their diet, stuff like that, you know, really changing their diet in, in major ways. But the self-control is, is lacking in a lot of cases, and myself as well, as I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. I'm, I'm certainly not perfect in this. But a few years ago, I had worked at a wound care center for about a year and a half, and uh, from, I went for special training in 2015, and then um, I, I saw patients at the wound care center for about a year and a half after that. And I would always kind of go through some of the basic nutrition stuff with the patients because they would come in with gaping holes in their feet and their legs and just great big wounds. And so I would kind of go through, through and I, I don't read anyone the riot act, even smokers, you know, they know they need to quit. People know they need to change their diet. I try to encourage them rather than rather than beating them down with it. But I would kind of go through, you know, high-protein diet, clean protein, too. Some of those shakes, I think, are so sugary that even though they have protein, they're not that good. So, you know, clean protein, like turkey breast, stuff like that, chicken breast, things like that. A lot of water, uh, multivitamins. You know, I'd go through this whole lengthy thing. And then I would also tell them, if you're drinking soda, you've got to stop all soda. Otherwise, that's, that's going to be very difficult to heal. So stop all sodas, diet sodas, and everything and I remember one patient, and I think this was actually probably about the last patient that I ever saw there. And this one patient, I said, you've got to stop soda. And that patient said, oh, I love soda. And then he, he, he almost kind of like drifted off, so bubbly and refreshing. And he's like, you don't happen to have one, do you? And I was like, no. And, but I, I had actually read him a ride act because he had two holes in his heels from blisters threatening his heel bone. And his legs were just so swollen. I was like, you've got to stop drinking. If this gets to the bone, you're going to lose your leg. And it might have to go above your knee, not below your knee. It's going to be the worst possible amputation. And so I read him all this thing. And then his response was, I love soda. I just, <laughs> so, uh, but I'm not, I'm really not any better. I, I promise. There, there's things, Jackie will tell you, there's things like, why did I do that? I'm 51 and I'm still some of these bad habits I still have. And so I don't like to read anyone a riot act or, or really, you know, go after them too hard. But I think I, I stopped at the wound care center about a year and a half just because it was hard enough managing one office, let alone being involved in another one. And also you do want to see patients, you know, working with patients who do want to help themselves. And, and some people didn't. And you could just tell that they weren't willing to institute, you know, certain you know, some basic principles, and, and I saw some catastrophic results as well for people that aren't willing to apply some basic principles. And, um, and so, you know, people, as the Bible says, you do kind of reap what you sow and should at least make an effort. It was funny because when we went down to the conference for the training for the hyperbaric oxygen chambers and so forth, we were down there and spent a week-long conference in Florida, and there were all kinds of doctors there, vascular surgeons, plastic surgeons, dermatology, foot and ankle, podiatry, all, all kinds of different doctors down there. And it, 
it was a conference, but they were just eating candy and drinking sodas and everything. And I've, I've seen it in medical conferences up here, too. It's like, we know better. We've got to, come on, we've got to apply these things, too. And maybe just because it's a conference, people kind of let their guard down a little bit, I suppose. But, but it, it's amazing that people eat like there's no repercussions. And, and I do it as well. And that, that's, um, you know, I, I've, told, I've told the children like, if you do well, don't let your success kill you. I see a lot of people who have done well, but you can't let, you know, can't let that take a hold of you. You've still got to apply some discipline and, and self-control there. My biggest issue, um, just to kind of elaborate, just to not talk about other people, my biggest issue is, is eating food and then eating food late. And then, um, you know, I, I try to make two loaves of bread to try to eat healthy on Sunday. The trouble is, Sometimes I get distracted, so then I, I, do it, I bake it too long or it doesn't come out good, and so then I don't want it. And I've got the hospital where I go over to, and they've got everything is just all set up, and it's just so easy. It's just so convenient, and convenience is, is not helpful. And they've got this, this um, Starbucks kiosk. I don't know what you call it, but it's like an automated machine, and you can get iced coffee in the, in the warmer months and then hot chocolate in the in the cooler months, and, and uh, it's just all so tempting and easy and free and everything. So I'm over there, you know, and then if, if I make good loaves of bread, then the children eat it, so then I'm still over at the hospital. So I'm, I'm trying to tighten up on all this and, and not do it. So I'm, I'm really weak in, the, in some areas and just, you know, you get hungry and then you just stop thinking about that. And I'm like, I can always do work over there. So then I shoot over there and get the food and everything, and I just don't need to be doing that. So we're trying to actually grow our own food to satisfy my sweet tooth. We just got some cherry trees and got some extra ones sent accidentally to us, these black tartian cherry trees. And they said on the description, it's like the best inadvertent advertising I've ever seen. It said, this used to be the most widely commercially available cherry, but then it was replaced by the Bing cherry. But trouble is that it was so plump and juicy that it didn't ship well. And I was like, I've got to have that cherry. <laughs> that, that sounds like the best cherry. I want that. So trying to cut away sugar. So the recommendation, basically, to kind of boil this down, you know, certainly you can do things in moderation. You know, a soda a week or something like that. So not saying you can't do different things and have fun and, you know, having a big, big weekend or whatever. You know, of course, common sense. But, but trying to restrain yourself as well. Now, there's a spiritual application to this as well, you know, limiting entertainment and those things that would hinder your spiritual walk. That's a, that's a big factor as well, limiting your time on social media, video games, whatever the case may be, just kind of limiting all that and disciplining yourself not to do that and, and you know, exercising self-control. On the self-discipline side of things, you know, that's getting, say, for example, the patients doing what they know they need to be doing you know, their feet hurt, their knees, their joints, and all that. So I try to encourage them to, to get there and well and try to help them. So all of this parallels the Christian walk. Self-control, again, that's ref refraining from certain things. It's controlling your tongue, controlling your habits, controlling your flesh, whereas self-discipline is positively going out to do these things, studying, praying, growing, fellowshipping, all these things that you're actively going out to do these things. It's, it's really kind of two sides of the same coin to live a godly life. Self-control is avoiding contamination for the world. You know, if you're, if you're seeing R-rated movies and it really doesn't bother you that much and the things that you hear and see, and, you know, you're kind of getting contaminated from the world like that and it doesn't bother you, 
you know, that's, that's something that would absolutely hinder your walk and it's going to affect your thinking and your, your mind and everything. So, so, you know, being very careful for things like entertainment or drinking alcohol, excessive alcohol, not controlling your time on social media. So that's the self-control side of the spiritual walk, whereas self-discipline is focusing on and doing the positive things like immersing yourself in the word of God, seeking godly fellowship, seeking godly counsel, praying with your spouse, all those things that are, that are positive and active. And you, you may have to discipline yourself to take those first few steps if you haven't developed it into a habit, but then you, you, know, you do that and then you grow to enjoy it. So that's kind of self-discipline, self-discipline, self-control. And thank God, you do the best you can, but there's grace to fill in the gaps as well as we all need that. So just to repeat this basic tenet, Self-control is not doing those things, even when you really want to do them. Self-discipline is doing the things you know you need to do, even when you don't want to do them. So regarding self-control, a couple of weeks ago, I'll mention Lent briefly. A couple of weeks ago, I'm afraid I may have introduced confusion, so I'll just be real quick on this. But Lent is something that I mentioned two weeks ago was Ash Wednesday, and um, so I just wanted to kind of talk about this briefly. Lent is a 40-day period of time where you can, you know, not do whatever it is that, that you might kind of sacrifice, so to speak. So it's a period of giving up something or fasting or pious living, something like that. Do I think that families and individuals should have a time of fasting? Absolutely. I'm all for it. You know, kids, families with their smartphones, I think, I think put it away for a month. Put, you know, put it away, especially children that don't require it for business and things like that. You know, go for a period of time without it. Get outside, do things like that. We don't have television at our house, but even so, we've had periods of times where we were like, okay, no, no movie rentals, you know, no, no um, you know, DVDs from the library, stuff like that. We're going to try to do games and stuff like that. It, it hasn't always worked. And then sometimes we're like, oh, we really want to see that. But, you know, you try and, and you try to, you know, I definitely agree with trying to give up things for a month or whatever, even though the temptation is there. We've had spending moratoriums for a month in theory, like especially after a vacation or a major investment. I've instituted spending moratoriums like, okay, well, we're not going to spend money on anything except essentials. So no eating out, no, no videos, no this, no that. And generally, I'm the only one that tends to go along with that, but <laughs> which is because I'm paying for it all. So, so anyway, I'm, we're working on that too. But do I think people should give up stuff for a month? Absolutely, a month, two months, whatever you want to do. It's it's godly. It's it's the thing to do. It is a good thing. With Lent, I'm a little bit careful. And, and what had happened was I had heard it on the radio, and it, it wasn't just a little bit on the radio. It was a lot on the Christian radio talking about the benefits of Lent. And I didn't feel like they gave it quite the full picture as to what Lent really is. And they were really focused on that and encouraging their listeners to participate in Lent without really explaining what it is. And I'm definitely no expert. This is a very quick um, little research project that I did. But I am against Lent for the most part for several reasons. Number one, it's not necessary. You can do it any time of the year. So again, just our overall thought process here is self-control. So Lent theoretically could be something part of self-control, self-discipline, things like that, pulling away from things of the world. You know, so it, it kind of sounds good, but you can fast any time of the year. It doesn't have to be these 40 days from, uh, from Ash Wednesday to 
leading up to the time of Easter. That's what it is. That's what the Lent period is. The origin is the catechism of the Catholic Church, like I'd mentioned before, and that tends to be elevated above the Bible from what I've seen as, as far as Lent, and maybe, maybe not everyone would agree with that, but generally the catechism of the Catholic Church is held in very high regard. We know that fasting is in the Bible, but not Lent per se. It commences with Ash Wednesday, so the period of Lent starts with Ash Wednesday, and then it goes for the 40 days and, and finishes with Easter. I would say that Ash Wednesday contradicts what Jesus says, though. Jesus says, when you want to fast, you know, don't make a show of how spiritual you are. Don't do this, don't do that, things like that. With Ash Wednesday, you are indicating you put an ash cross on your forehead and you wear it for a day. And then you, and I remember back in high school, kind of my friend, my Catholic friends were kind of like that. And I was like, why are you so down? You know, what's going on? What is that on your forehead? And, um, you know, I didn't understand any of that. And so, you know, it is, it is kind of an outward sign, which Jesus says explicitly not to do. So we're not really to draw attention when we're doing a fast or anything like that. You just kind of do it and, and do what you have to do. But Ash Wednesday is, is opposite of that. The timing doesn't exactly correspond to the Bible as well. The 40 days of Lent supposedly corresponds to Jesus' time in the desert, but then it culminates in the cross. Well, the time that Jesus spent in the desert was early on in his ministry, whereas the time at the cross was, of course, at the very end. So the timing doesn't exactly line up either. So I don't see the point of that exactly. Um, and then the last thing, which I, I learned and I didn't know, but then when I was kind of researching this and thinking about it, everything started to click. But there's actually Ash Wednesday, which begins on, on Wednesday, but it technically starts on Tuesday. So this is called Shrove Tuesday. This is the Tuesday right before Ash Wednesday. So another term for this is Fat Tuesday, and another term for that is probably what you would know it as Mardi Gras. So apparently what this is, is this is a major indulgence in the flesh that you would participate in. So you just kind of indulge your flesh if you've seen anything about Mardi Gras, which isn't good. You know, you kind of indulge your flesh and then on the, ne then the next day is Ash Wednesday, and then you kind of repent for everything you just did on Tuesday. That, that doesn't always make sense to me. Um, but why I say things started to click for me is because when I was in the Navy, I, I participated in a, in a Mardi Gras in the Navy in the Gulf War. And um, so we, we basically, I, I forget, I flew out to Spain in, um, in August and then sailed across the Mediterranean and down into the Persian Gulf and got there later. And then we got into the Persian Gulf at one point. And then I don't rem remember when we had a bunch of reservists come in, maybe like November or something like that. We had a bunch of Navy reservists come in from Louisiana, New Orleans. And so they seemed like pretty normal people until February and Mardi Gras. And there wasn't even any alcohol. And then they had, they had stuff everywhere, stuff on the walls. Just it was party central. And um, so they kind of they went kind of crazy even without the alcohol or anything like that at Mardi Gras. And I didn't know anything about that either. So this is just now, just this, this week until I learned what exactly Mardi Gras was. I didn't even know. So again, regarding, regarding Lent, if you really wanted to do it, you know, seek the Lord, talk to the Lord, talk to Pastor Tim. You know, I would just be careful with what you may, what message you may convey to, um, to other people who may not know and may assume that you're a Catholic. I would just be careful with it. But 
But fasting, you know, even fasting with other people, I think is, is great, and you could fast whatever it is that you would want to. But I would just be careful about that. Uh, one other key point that I'd like to point out, not, not so much about, about Lent or anything like that, but with gentleness and self-control is we're gentle, we're self-controlled. Like, for example, with the evangelism and the two-by-two ministry, we're going to go out, and same thing with the prison ministry, and talking with your family and, and talking with whomever, you know, we're still to be gentle and loving with them. So anything that we participate in, we're to be gentle and loving, but not compromising. And, you know, I guess it sort of ties into like Lent and things like that, just, just being very careful, kind of walking a, a fine line there, but not compromising. I'm hearing a lot of compromise, like on the Christian radio and, and messages, things like that. Thank God for Pastor Tim, you know, just following the Bible, keeping it, keeping it based on what the Bible says, and other, many other Calvaries as well. I'm very thankful for that. But the church, the Western church, has to be careful. Just from what I hear on the radio, that's, that is kind of a good sampling where it seems like there is a lot of, a lot of compromise, a lot of watered-down, emotion-oriented gospel. I'm assuming other people have noticed this as well. But giving up, you're really kind of giving up the importance of your doctrine for some points of minutiae, even if they're not, not wrong, you just don't want to give up your, you know, you just can't compromise on your doctrine. You're not hearing things about sin, righteousness, or speaking of the judgment to come. I learned a lesson regarding uh, studying history. I just finished a book, so this is just a quick aside, but there was an interesting spiritual insight with that. It was an audio book on the war between the United States and the Barbary States, so the North African coastal states there like um, Tunisia, Morocco, all those. And ever since my Navy days, I'd been wondering about the U.S. Marine Corps hymn where it talked about the halls of Montezuma and the shores of Tripoli. And I was like, why is that North Africa? I've wondered that for 30 years since I was in the Navy. And I happened to get a, a short book on CD regarding it. And it was, it was interesting. And there is a spiritual point to this, I promise. But the newly formed United States around 1799 to 1804 right around in there, our ships of commerce were getting robbed by the North African pirates, and the Corsairs and pirates and all this, and, and John Adams, God bless him, love John Adams and everything he did for our country. I'm very thankful I wasn't there, but he did, he was willing to appease the pirates, so they would pay these exorbitant amounts to the pirates just not to attack our ships. So they fought a war of appeasement for several years and it got more and more expensive, and then they had to pay every country, Tunisia, Libya, with Tripoli, especially Tripoli, which is why that verse is in the song, by the way. So all these places, and they were exacting more and more money, and it's, it's very similar to like mafia tactics and cartels. You pay them not to harass you, which is a great business model, by the way, if, if anybody wants to get in and you know, figure out a business where we could actually do that. That's a great business model, not to have to do anything and get paid for it and then extract more and more people, money from people. So it was a war of appeasement. Thankfully, uh, Thomas Jefferson got in, and, and he was, there was still a consensus. Our, our country, country was broke at the time. We didn't have it in the Treasury. But Thomas Jefferson, is, he was, you know, he basically put into action what my gut was, you know, which I'm sure all of you would think too, don't just keep paying these countries thousands and thousands of dollars. Build your own fleet and defend your own fleet. So a war of appeasement never works. It was fought for several years, 
but it leads to economic impoverishment. But the church, it seems to me, is doing the same thing, or is at least at risk of doing the same thing. So we've got to be careful with this. It seems that we're so worried about offending everyone. For example, you know, when you take creation, Adam, Eve, Noah, it's kind of like we're just giving that to the world, like, okay, all right, you got us there. So it's all an allegory. You know, it's just stuff we tell our kids. It's, you know, fanciful tales and, and fairy tales, things like that. And then we lose the definition of a marriage between a man and a woman and the role of a man and a woman, when to take life, abortion, things like that, right, wrong, morality, hell, judgment. We've, we've fought this war of appeasement, and it's a losing strategy. And so about the only thing we have left are our emotions, which is why so many songs are oriented toward our emotions. It's a, it's a war of appeasement. It's a losing strategy. We're giving everything to the world songs that kind of drive me crazy, actually, like, I won't sing it, but you guys know the artist. I feel it in my heart. I feel it in my soul. That's how I know. Oh, 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 Toby Mac. You know. <laughs> so anyway, didn't seem like you guys knew what song it was. But anyway, and nothing against Toby Mac or anything like that, but that's not how we know. The Word of God is, says, don't trust your heart, whatever you do. So um, so by compromising, we're letting the world define our doctrine. It, it is a, it's a war of appeasement that we would have to be careful with that would lead to spiritual impoverishment. So to summarize that, we can be gentle and demonstrate our love for people through our self-control without compromising our doctrine. So that's the point of all that. Last part um, is... It's actually from a book. It's gentleness and self-control toward our children. So folks that don't yet have children or maybe you're going to have grandchildren soon, whatever the case may be, we know that children can be a valley of testing for us. And there's, there's some irony in all of this. Like I said, I'm not always gentle with my patients. I really try to be gentle and I really try to focus. So people are coming in and they're paying $50 copays, $60. I just had my first $80 copay the other day, which I couldn't believe, but they're paying these steep prices. So when they come into the room, my attention is on them and I want them to know my attention is on them and I'm, I'm hanging on every word so they know you are the focus of my attention, you know, no other, distract, no other distraction. I've, I've really trying to ho tried to hone my skills in doing this, really paying attention to exactly what they're saying, you know, really trying to build a relationship with them. And what I've done over the years then is when I go home, for some reason, I just forget about all that. I come home and then there's a lot of little children and, and they're messy and dirty and they have coughs and <laughs> viruses and stuff like that. And then I then it just kind of, you know, I have to kind of run away for a minute and then I try to find Jackie and she's rocking in the corner and <laughs> things like that. So, so anyway, so, you know, but of course I, I, I realize I shouldn't do it and I've tried to grow in that over the years, I'm like, wow, you, you know, I just can't be hypocritical like that where I'm working so hard in, in one aspect of my life, but then I'm not applying it to my family life. I've got to be careful and, and really not do that. So, uh, so with children, you know, it's such a, such a precious thing. I have a few excerpts from this book by J.C. Ryle. He was an Anglican pastor from the 1800s. And this thin little book, I'd actually picked it up before doing the study or anything, and I'd read, and I was like, Wow, that is really solid writing. That, back when the Anglican Church, I think, was, was a, a bit different than today's. But So from the 1800s, and just very, very solid, as you'll see, just very solid theology. So I'll read a few, um, 
a few parts from that. And uh, it would be something even if we went over like with the bottom rowers or like its own separate little study. It's, it's that good as you'll see here in just a few seconds. So the first quote, and I'm, I'm, some things I'm kind of paraphrasing or I'm condensing or, or whatever, so it may not be word for word, but most of it is. Love should be the silver thread that runs through all your conduct. Kindness, kindness gentleness, long-suffering, patience, forbearance, sympathy, all to draw the child. Few people are to be bound, even among grown-ups, who are not more easy to draw than to drive. Number two, nothing will compensate for the absence of this tenderness and love. Love is one grand secret of successful training. Anger and harshness may frighten, but they will not persuade the child that you are right. And if he sees you often out of temper, he will soon cease to have his respect. A father who speaks to his son, as Saul did to Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20:30, need not expect to retain his influence over the son's mind. That's where, that's where Saul really goes after Jonathan and just says, you, perver you son of a perverse, re rebellious woman, do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother? And he really goes off on Jonathan, and, you know, and there's a little bit of a divide there. And so, uh, and then you know the rest of the story. Regarding training your child, our, so this is another quote, sorry. Regarding training your child, our duty is not to stand still and dispute. So he's talking about you don't just stand still and dispute with the Lord, but you go forward and obey. It is just in the going forward that God will meet us. The path of obedience is the way in which he gives the blessing. Uh, next one. I love this next, actually next yeah, next five, actually. The soul of your child is the first thing to be considered precious. No doubt are these little ones in your eyes. But if you love them, think often of their souls. No interest should weigh with you so much as eternal interests. The spirit which dwells in those little creatures whom you love so well shall outlive them all. And whether in happiness or misery, to speak as a man will depend on you. So, wow, that's... That is deep there. How how much your influence is gonna is gonna affect your children and their eternal interests as well. Like you said, I love this next one too. A true Christian must be no slave to fashion if he would train his child for heaven. He must not be content to do things merely because they are the custom of the world. To teach them and instruct them in certain ways merely because it is usual to allow them to read books of questionable sort merely because everybody else reads them, to let them form the habits, habits of the day. He must train with an eye to his children's souls. He must not be ashamed to hear his training called singular and strange. What if it is? The time is short. The fashion of this world passeth away. He that has trained his child for heaven rather than for earth, for God rather than man. He is the parent that will be called wise at last. So we try to do this as well. He's saying, don't just go along with everything. I don't even think people read books anymore these, these days. But you could say they're your cell phone, your smartphone, <clears throat> whatever it is that, you know, the child may have and, and just, well, everybody else has it. This is how it's conversation goes about once a week right now with one of our teenage sons, the, the younger youngest of the teenage sons. He says, Dad, can I have a cell phone? I'm like, no. And he's like, everybody else has one. I don't care. No. And then he says, well, 
I'm going to need one eventually. And then I say, well, get an education and a job. I'm 51, and I don't have one, so you'll live without it. And then it's his back and forth as if he's not going to make it if he doesn't have a cell phone. And I'm like, no, you just, you just don't need it right now. And he's probably going to get one. Nathaniel has one for traveling to Newport News. William has one for college and everything. David will probably eventually get, get one. But it's okay to say no, at least for a while. It, it can be a helpful tool. There's no question about it. I'm not saying that, that it's not, but like Pastor Ryle is saying here, you don't have to go along with every, every single thing that everybody else is doing at, any, at, at every time that everyone else is doing it. So a couple more of the quotes, and we'll wrap it up. Prayer is one great secret of spiritual prosperity. Prayer is the mightiest engine God has placed in our hands. It is the best weapon to use in every difficulty and the surest remedy in every trouble. It is the key that unlocks the treasury of promises and the remedy of every trouble. I'm sorry, whoops. And the, I'm sorry, it is the key that unlocks the treasury of promises and the hand that draws forth grace and help in time of need. And then next one, this prayer, remember, is the first step in religion which a child is able to take. You must beware of giving up the oversight of this matter to servants and nurses or of trusting too much to your children's doing when left to themselves. Believe me, if you never hear your children pray yourself, you are much to blame. So that's, that's pretty significant there as well. You know, just getting in there with your children, praying with them, being with them, uh, even before they can read or do anything else, being with them to pray. Last one, those words... You have not because you ask not, James 4.2, will be a fearful condemnation to many in the day of judgment. So heavy, heavy words there. Uh, in closing, uh, I'll just give a, a quick part of my testimony and the, an example of lack of self-control. I'd given my testimony a few years back, but as you all know, I was lived all over the U.S., born in California, then moved all over the place. So we didn't live in any place for all that long. And um, in my senior year of high school, I moved from Maryland to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Our whole family went out there. And that was good because I had some friends that were going down, clearly down the wrong path. And it was good because I was skipping school. I was, you know, I wasn't interested in school, just wanted to finish and move on. But I had friends that I was going along with and uh, didn't have a, a walk with the Lord or anything like that. And so I think the Lord protected all of us, myself especially, though, just for being involved with these friends by moving to Albuquerque. Got a new set of friends and ROTC and stuff and then graduated high school there. And then and they were generally clean. I, I flew back after I graduated. I flew back uh, to Maryland to see those friends again and to spend a few weeks there. And... So the first night, or the, the day after I got back, the previous night, I, I could tell things were, were going in a different direction than I was comfortable with. But that night, they had done something very bad. They had really vandalized and destroyed somebody's car just because they, they didn't like it. They had been out drinking, and then they, they destroyed someone's car and their ride home. And I was like, wow, that's, that's taking it up a, a level from you know, the stuff you were doing before. So I, I could tell you know, they were, they were kind of going down a, a different path. Well, anyway, we were there. I was there for several weeks and um, not doing a lot of good overall. And so one afternoon we had gone out to a field to 
party, quote unquote, which if you read between the lines, that's to go out and drink. And I rode out there with a, a, one of the friends who was actually on his fifth car. He had wrecked all four cars, and that should have been a sign to me not to get in, in that car. And so he loved electronic stuff, and I didn't know anything about electronic stuff. He loved it. He had every little flashing, buzzing, all kinds of you know speed detectors, stereo stuff, and all this. And so we were driving out there, and we were the lead car. We were driving out, and his stereo stopped working, and I was sitting directly behind him. And so he asked me to switch seats so that I could pull the seat down and check the wiring. And I, did, I couldn't have even connected two wires, even if I knew you know basics. I just didn't know anything about it. So I was like, yeah, whatever. I'll fold the seat down and look interested. But uh, I pulled the seat down, and I didn't see any loose connections or anything like that. So I just pulled the seat back up. A little while later, we got to the field, and so we were making a left-hand turn when all of a sudden the second car in our little convoy plowed into the, our side. And so then we shot down a hill and hit a fence hard. The whole thing was, was brutally hard. And so um, I, was, I was in the passenger side in the, in the back row. The person ahead of me he got out of the car. There were just steam. There was steam. There was noise. There was everything. So I, I popped up into the front seat, and just before I got out of the car, I looked over at my friend, and I almost couldn't believe my eyes. But his teeth were vertical to his. Sorry to be graphic, but his teeth were vertical to his. His. Uh, I'm sorry. His teeth were perpendicular to his jaw. So, and then I looked at the steering wheel, and the steering wheel had bent forward. And his teeth, all of his lower teeth were out, and then blood started to pour out. So I was sitting behind him, and that's where the car crashed into us. And I knew the Lord had his hand upon me at that time, at least, you know, protecting me from my own stupidity, even being in there in the car with them. But if the stereo hadn't failed at that time, then I would have been hit right along, you know, right with him because I had been on that side. But then the car plowed into us. So in my noble Self, I just I didn't check on him. I just I flew out of the car and got out of there, and then he he actually got out and walked over to us, and then he actually collapsed there, and then everybody the fire trucks and everything and ambulances and everything came. So, <clears throat> when I thought back about that, that was actually the second time the Lord had delivered me. I had to think about it and put it together, but that's a story for another time. That was a time that the Lord actually delivered me. So two miraculous deliverances. And that was actually possible trouble with the law, and the Lord had stepped in and delivered me from that other time. So two times within one year. My point with all this is we, the people couldn't even make it to the field to start partying, didn't have a designated driver. We didn't have any of that. Very, very careless. So my point is with self-control, self-discipline, especially for young people, there can be immediate consequences. You know, driving drunk, of course, is an example we all know. But that's one that happened in my own life. And, and thank God the Lord preserved me through that and protected me. But there can also be long-term consequences, you know, a series of baby steps towards something good, a healthy life, or towards something, you know, something um, not good, and, you know, becoming an alcoholic, things like that. So uh, of all that, um, with that, let's just go before the Lord. So it's about time. But really enjoyed sharing the word and, and just sharing this message. Father, we thank you and praise you. Thank you so much for being in our midst, Lord God. And thank you for, Father, your grace when we, Lord, when we don't measure up and we, 
we fall away, Lord, or we fail to exhibit gentleness, self-control, self-discipline, all these things, Lord God. Thank you for your word, how it instructs us. Thank you for uh, just your many blessings. Thank you for your grace, especially, Lord, that fills in the gaps when we fail, Lord, and that you instruct us to make it right as well. We praise you, Lord. We pray for your blessing upon our evening, and uh, we thank you again for being in our presence. In Jesus' name, amen.